and my fellow Pennsylvanians. This state's electoral votes are key to who wins the presidency, and both of the candidates know it. We win Pennsylvania, we win the whole deal, you know that. Just like last time. But states like Pennsylvania are going to be incredibly important. The only thing left on the board is Pennsylvania. The president cannot get to the finish line without the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. One state all four candidates are visiting today is Pennsylvania. Its 20 electoral votes are highly coveted, and the Keystone State could end up being one of the determining factors in the race. Jill's a Philly girl. Well, I'm a screen guy. Oh, Pennsylvania. We love Pennsylvania. Hey folks, welcome to the second episode of our three-part series on the Philly suburbs. Today we're talking to a pair of new activists. In 2018, their efforts helped elect what are commonly called the Fab Four, and they also flipped numerous state house and state senate seats. Now, they didn't let up in 2019. They worked on municipal and county races and prepared for the presidential. And in 2020, these two were leading volunteer armies of like-minded activists, and they were using every tool in the toolbox of grassroots organizing. Now, most incredibly, my two guests today were not political in 2016. One was a successful attorney in Montgomery County, and one was a middle school in Delaware County. First, we're going to talk to Jack DiPremio, who is uh, now finishing his senior year. He uh, was a team leader and top phone banker for the Biden campaign in Delaware County. Uh, he also was the state director of Beto O'Rourke's Powered by the People campaign. We then sit down with Jamie Parapato, the executive director and co-founder of Turn PA Blue. Since its founding, Turn PA Blue has knocked on 200,000 doors. They've written a million postcards. They've sent a million text messages. And for good measure, they made 4 million phone calls. Everyday activists like these are a large part of why Pennsylvania flipped back to Dems in 2020. And I know that you'll enjoy hearing their perspective on the last year and what it all means for 2022. Jack DiPremio, welcome to my kitchen table. Hi, thank you. I love your kitchen table. <laughs> I appreciate it. Now, Jack, you have volunteered and worked on more campaigns and more advocacy initiatives, I think, than most Americans uh, who are two times or three times your age. Um, so where does this spark come from uh, at the ripe old age of 18? Well, the spark was a buildup of things. Uh, you know, I take a quote from one of my used-to-be favorite politicians, Hillary Clinton, It Takes a Village. And it, it took, like many teachers, a buildup of education to really get involved as actively as I did. But I would say, like, two issues really activate my passions in politics. I would say that number one is economic inequality, because when I was young... You know, an eight-year-old doesn't know what a foreclosure is. They don't know what an economic recession is, but they feel the side effects of that. They see their parents argue. They see their parents get stressed out more. And there was just this tension that built up in my house in 2009 because we almost lost our home. And I learned about that about seven years after it happened, that I almost lost my home. I, I was my family was a data point in the wider statistics of the Great Recession. And I saw Elizabeth Warren talk about it when I was in eighth grade. And the way she framed economic inequality within the, the, the aftermath of the Great Recession and what hedge fund managers did, what big bankers on Wall Street did, it framed my view of capitalism and 
it made me not anti-capitalist, but it made me more skeptical of capitalism. And then I took an economics class in 10th grade and we learned about trickle-down economics and learning about trickle-down economics and reading Elizabeth Warren policies in her books uh, kind of like made me, it, it formed my political ideology and it activated me to volunteer in the 2020 election. Can I ask you, uh, Jack, did you, or maybe I should phrase it, did your parents let you volunteer in the historic 2018 midterms when all of a sudden you had a Democratic congresswoman for the first time in your county's history or was 2020 your first uh, foray? No, well, it was interesting. So I would say I was like always generally interested in politics. I didn't really know what, what I was passionate about, but I would say that I always leaned liberal, I think because <laughs> I'm gay and there was like that social justice aspect of it. But no, my parents are really conservative and I didn't really tell them that I was getting involved in 2018. I wouldn't say that I was too active, but I did help my local state representative knock on doors and I made phone calls. And who, who's, uh, who's that? I think our listeners would be interested to yeah, hear my, more my about that experience. Yeah, Mike Zabel. And I hated it at first. Oh, my God. It was, really? I did. No, because pe- activists act like... Because the word is you're, you're quite the door-knocking organizing machine now, uh, three years later. So. Oh, my God, no. It takes like years, or it took years for me. Uh, no, I hated it. I was shy. Um, I didn't know how to talk to people. I didn't even know what my values were at first. I was like, why am I ag- ag- advocating for this politician? And... People made me realize what I was passionate about because they would push me on questions. And then the more I answer those questions, the more I realize what my core values were. So actually 2018, now that I think about it, I that was actually really formative for me because I went from hating canvassing to putting up with it to in 2020, like totally missing it because we were just calling people on the phones. I got to ask you, uh, reflecting back uh, three years ago now, you would have been a high school student at the time. Uh, and I can only imagine the emotion, but the tragedy in Parkland, Florida mm-hmm. at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, uh, if you can speak to that and then to what extent to the March for Our Lives on, on the Parkway in Philadelphia and across the Commonwealth and even in Washington, D.C. affect uh, you and your classmates. Oh, totally. And now that I think about it, it was in uh, 2018, a precursor to the midterms. And that actually activated my political activism in that year. I would say I was, I broke a lot of rules at school that year. Yeah. Well, I guess you can say that because you're a graduating senior, but what, what, what do you mean by that? No, no secrets. Sorry, Principal Simone, if you're listening to this, but oh my God, no, I was devastated after coming home on Valentine's day. And I remember my mom calling me and she didn't want me to watch the news because I have anxiety and it triggered a lot of anxiety for me. But honestly, at Upper Darby, it was it spoke to, I think, a lot of students because we had experienced about four to five lockdowns already that year at Upper Darby. So the threat of like gun violence was almost hanging over our heads somewhat all year. And then the Parkland shooting happened. And I think those students really motivated a lot of kids across the country. They they motivated me. And I broke rules by I, I broke I didn't break into the high school, but I stayed really late. I was studying in the library and I decided to leave at the last minute. At the last minute, I printed out posters that just said walk out because I heard about the school walkout movement that was being organized by the March for Our Lives students. And I, 
It was like a clandestine intelligence operation. I staked out locations in the high school to put posters in after the school was closed. So it was me and the janitor in the building alone. I made sure the janitor wasn't looking. I would go into the hallways, put up posters that said walk out. And after two nights of doing that, enough students uh, noticed the posters in the hallway to formally uh, organize a walkout movement. And at Upper Darby, it was actually the first student-wide protest at Upper Darby. And we ended up organizing an event. And that was really my first, I would say, outside kind of like act of rebellion. <laughs> well, Jack, I, I, would, I would actually call it a, an act of activism and, and you're exercising yeah, your first First Amendment rights. You know, I think for a lot of listeners, when we think about 18 to 22-year-old voters or even 18 to 29-year-old voters, often we don't think of them as voters and we think of them more as activists and less so taking the time to act on their convictions and cast a ballot. So what, what was it between 2018 to 2020, or I guess maybe even 2019, that you realized that the power and importance of your vote and electoral politics I'm not saying that the two are mutually exclusive, but, you know, I, I, I admire that you plunged headfirst into electoral politics uh, and realized the importance. And I hope you can speak to that. Yeah, thank you. And it's easier for me to speak about it personally, because Generation Z, we're a really cynical generation, but it's weird because we're split into like this activist generation, but also like apathetic. So there's like kind of a dichotomy in our generation. But I would say that I really plunged into electoral politics because I realized that like 2020, if Democrats won, if, if we won Bacon, Pennsylvania, if we won uh, federally, all the things that motivated me as a young person, gun rights, LGBTQ rights, voting rights, economic reform, like I, the only way that I knew stuff would change would be if we had Democrats in office. And I struggle with it today. Like, Activists don't just wake up and say, oh, my gosh, I love electoral politics. This is like our end goal. Like, no, we understand reality that Washington is really slow. They don't always listen to the people and what the people want. But I just try to focus pragmatically on what a Democratic administration could have done in 2020 and what they will do now that Joe Biden is in office. There wasn't a singular issue that like prompted me, like it was a mixture of the Parkland shooting. It was a mixture, uh, even at the end of the 2020 election, when Amy Coney Barrett was appointed, it was a mixture of like facing the economic consequences of conservative policies. So it, it's hard to say, like it, it is really hard to say. How big's uh, your graduating class? I realize that you have another three months or so to graduation, but uh, I, can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait to graduate. It's about 1000 students. Wow. And obviously very, very diverse there in Upper Darby. What Now, when you look at the 1,000 students, how many would you say took the time to vote uh, last November? It's easier to judge last year's class because I think more people were qualified to vote with the age. But I would say eligible voters in my class, I would say probably about uh, 30%, which is very low. Very low. Yeah. So you, you told me the first thing you did on your 18th birthday on October 9th, uh, right before the deadline, was register to vote. So what what is it? Why, when you look at your classmates, when you look uh, elsewhere in suburban Philadelphia, what's the hurdle? I mean, it's fairly easy. You you, you know how to navigate websites better than anyone. Uh, what, what, you know, what What is it to print the damn form out and to vote? 
to register think, at least. I think what a lot of like older people don't understand, because the New York Times would try to write about it, like all of these so-called like academics. <laughs> people just don't understand that like young people, our lives aren't adjusted to registering to a vo- to vote. Because let me kind of like break it down. The kids my age are worried about college applications. We're worried about the minimum wage jobs we have. If a, a student won't register to vote, if they're about to move, they they think that their voting location, you know, will constantly change and they don't know how to get that addressed. Um, they don't know the issues. They don't have the time to study issues. So I would say for me, it's almost like privilege because I had the time, energy and resources to study politics, to know how to register, to know how the voting system works. A lot of students just think their lives aren't their lives aren't able to make them vote, if that makes sense. I, I should have asked this earlier, Jack. As you look back on the historic 2020 elections, mm-hmm. uh, turning 18, you had so many experiences. If you could kind of go down the hit list of the top three, I think our listeners, I certainly am uh, pretty impressed with everything you packed into the last year. And somehow you were able to go to school and uh, uh, I guess virtually and, and keep your grades up to graduate. But uh, yeah, I mean, t- tell us about the amazing volunteer opportunities you had. Oh my gosh, yes. Well, number one was traveling to New Hampshire during the winter and fall. It, it's such a beautiful drive. And to feel the energy on the ground in the first primary state is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for a lot of people, and I would totally recommend doing it. And you, you went up there for Senator Warren's campaign? I did. I, I volunteered for Senator Warren. We knocked on doors in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Oh, on the seacoast. Okay. Yeah. Unfortunately, like I never got to meet Senator Warren during the campaign and I'm, I still want a selfie with her. Oh, I'm trying to, I have a lot of stories. Oh, well, we have a lot of listeners in Washington, DC. So uh, they might know people who know people, Jack. Yeah, that's true. No, you're right. It's a small world in politics. Honestly, the, the, a really fun experience was like going to debate watch parties. It's not really like activism, but <laughs> the last debate watching Mike Bloomberg get ripped to shreds by Elizabeth Warren with like your campaigning friends was really fun. <laughs> it was one of my favorite. And what about you had some door to door experience and uh, traditional grassroots organizing? I do. I don't, I don't want to scare people because I do have like wild stories of canvassing. I would say like most people are really normal and actually you meet a lot of really interesting people. I met a farmer who was who just moved back from Israel on a kibbutz. Oh, what's it called? Um, like a commune farm in Israel. He was really interesting. I did have a gun pointed at me in New Hampshire <laughs> canvassing. Guys, this is really rare. Like, don't be scared. It's safe to canvass. Honestly, have safety precautions. Um, and, quite, and closer to home in the Philadelphia suburb, so when you look at... Um you know, the final 100 days of the campaign, final month of the campaign, uh, what, what what was the highlight? I mean, you must have felt the electricity uh, there in oh my gosh, Southeast PA. You know, yeah, in the general election, the last month was so energizing. So many more people came out to volunteer. People were responding more on the phones. They were responding more on doors. I met a lot of new neighbors. Oh my gosh, it's so fun. It's like you get to meet all these people. And obviously the country at that time was like really hit hard by the, by the pandemic. And we weren't able to meet each other. We weren't able to go outside and obviously we we were safe, but to connect with the community 
and also the Joe Biden rallies, the drive-in rallies, they were really fun. I oh, did you get a chance to, to go to one of those? I got to see John Legend and I oh, got wow. to see Kamala and Joe uh, the days before the election. So that was really fun. Yeah. So, I mean, with, with all of this, as we wind down, Jack, I still need to push a little bit deeper. And, you know, I'm not saying that you're the, the ambassador for every 18-year-old in America, but I'm just so impressed with what you packed in uh, over the last year, over the last three years. And I personally wish, as I think a lot of our listeners do, that more folks your age would do uh, even the bare minimum, which is taking a few minutes out of their day and going to vote, let alone registering to vote. So uh, what is your message as you take a look from lessons learned over the last three years and over the next three years with an eye to 2024 to have more 18 to 22 year olds do their part? I don't, can I kind of like turn it around and send a message to like Democrats? Sure. Yeah. Act big in the next 100 days in Biden's with Biden's majority act big. We cannot afford to lose 2022. Young people need to feel differences in their lives. If that means passing the filibuster, so be it. Young people aren't going to think that voting makes a difference if they've heard that Democrats will raise the minimum wage and they they end up not doing that. Young people won't get out to vote if they hear that student debt might be canceled and then it ends up not being canceled. Because most young people don't know what a filibuster is. And that's honestly not up to them to decide. Lawmakers in the Senate need to act big for young people. If, if Democrats want to rely on their on our vote, they need to be more progressive. Yeah. If I'm hearing you correctly, and candidly, I, I've, I've seen this often, that elected officials and candidates, they, they view uh, older generations as a constituency that, yeah. that needs to be served, that needs to be listened to, that needs to have tailored messages delivered. And young folks like yourself, our constituency that needs to be managed. And it's so annoying. Uh, so, uh, hey, let's let's end on a high note, Jack. Uh, what does the fall hold for you in the next four years? I am majoring in political science and sociology at American University. Oh, so you're coming to Washington. All right. Well, you're going to be uh, you're already in the deep end, but now you're going to be uh, thriving uh, uh, in the deep end. Well, Jack, thanks so much for taking the time. And uh, I really appreciate, as I said many times, uh, the activism. Well, thanks again to Jack for taking off time from senior year homework and sharing some of the highlights of 2020. Next up, uh, Jamie lives the next county over and is from a different generation with a different perspective than Jack. But she's equally passionate about where PA politics can go. And she's permanently changed her life to make that vision a reality. Jamie Parapetta, welcome to my kitchen table. Hi, thanks so much for having me. You know, the Philadelphia Inquirer called you a monster, a monster that Trump uh, woke up, as I recall. And I've never had a monster at my kitchen table, but yes, uh, it's a real, a uh, uh, but in a good way. So yeah. I want to go, I want to go back four years, which, you know, seems like 40 years ago, but uh, March of 2017. And I would love to, uh, and I know our listeners would love to hear kind of what was going through your mind and where you were. It sounds like you were at quite the crossroads. Yeah, I mean, I think it started more so right after the election, there was like a collective grieving that was happening around the country, especially with progressives and Democrats and people were coming together in groups and and talking about this and what it meant and what they could do about it, you know, and I'm a listener, I'm a learner, you know, so I kind of floated around all these different things trying to see where I could fit. And, um, you know, 
it bothered me that there was no cohesiveness. Like there, nobody really had a plan. Everyone was just outraged and, you know, outrage only gets you so far. And there was one day that we had, I live in Lower Marion and there was a indivisible Lower Marion meeting and an indivisible Narberth meeting at the same time, the same day, a mile apart. And both of them had excellent lineups. They both had great turnout, but like these people are a mile apart and they're not communicating. So maybe we need to start communicating. And I was invited to a pre-scheduled meeting at Art Haywood's house, Senator Art Haywood's house, where he was talking about trying to get volunteers interested in working in state legislative races. And I thought that was a really interesting concept because I, you know, wanting to be active and wanting to volunteer, I didn't know how. I didn't know how to get involved. You know, you get involved in the presidential when they come into town in, you know, the summer. But, you know, what do you do other times? What do you do until then? So um, that's kind of how it started, seeing all these amazing groups that were doing the work like they were in my area and figuring out how we could band together to be like an effective force to get things done. So before 2017 or more specifically before November 2016, were you politically active other than voting or this was all brand new territory for you? I was not politically active. I mean, I did, you know, I I did my perfunctory door knocking for, you know, Hillary. I think I might've been pregnant like both Obama elections. I'm not even sure. And I also worked for the judiciary. So we weren't really allowed. It just was not a habit. I got in, you know, I, I lived in Philadelphia. I lived in, you know, Lower Marion. So it wasn't, you know, we weren't fighting Republicans, you know, I, I, at that point, I don't think I paid enough attention, but then after realizing, you know, after I wanted to do something, I wanted to help and I didn't know how. Thank you. I mean, my, my understanding, and I can't even imagine the undertaking, but over the last four years, your team, even just in the last year, your team has hit 200,000 doors, written a million postcards, done more text messages, probably than your thumbs uh, care to remember. Uh, I think we did 4 million calls, 2020 cycle. Wow. Let's talk about that. That that doesn't just happen overnight to go from what you just described to a bit of a light bulb hitting in 2017 to now four years later. I mean, this is a long and winding road, I imagine. And I know our listeners would love to, to hear about that in granular detail. Yeah, so that's what Senator Haywood said, you know, let's find the task. Well, let's make the task be the state legislature because it's an open, you know, it's an open lane. There's not a lot of resources, not a lot of help. It's vital to what we're trying to do. And maybe we could activate people around this. So I started going to all the indivisible meetings and all the groups that were meeting to just listen and see what they were doing. And then I was making connections and meeting people and seeing if I could try to fold them into this. And the place where we had the earliest success was Northwest Philly which is where I met Andrea Koplov, who is our organizing director, because Northwest Philly would go anywhere and do anything. So they were great. So Andrea and I worked on building it together. And Andrea has such an amazing skill set at making volunteering accessible to people. And I would just was like working on growing it and bringing people in and educating. And, you know, the touch that my field team has with volunteers is nothing like it. And that is why I think we're so successful because what we try to do is bring out the best in people. Like we don't go to a county committee and say, you need to do A, B, and C. You know, we're like, what do you need? Like, what would help? How can we help? And then I'm like a retriever and I try to go find the help that they need. And Andrea, you know, teaches them how to do it. And and she builds this volunteer base that comes back again and again because volunteers are a commodity. They're valuable. You know, there's no structure for people to fold into unless it's a presidential year and there's no community around it. You know, it's election day 
And then, you know, you have the drop off for the uh, odd years like this. And these years are the most vital. This year is what's more. If we don't get this work done in 2021, that's going to kill us in 2022. The work we do now is vital for that. Just like the 2019 cycle, 2017 cycle. A lot, a lot, to, a lot to unpackage there, Jamie. But uh, when you refer to this vital work, what, what specifically? Are you suggesting the judicial races or the municipal races? What? Community, local community building. So, you know, if you're talking about areas that we need to win, you know, that we need to flip, most of the districts we work are purple, kind of maroon, but hopefully they'll be purple after redistricting. Um, right now they're, you know, and some of them are really, really red. And, and if you look at the 2020 results with, with Biden, he won on the margins. You know, there were a lot of people who showed up and did a lot of hard work. So you can't say, you know, A, deliver everybody. I laugh because you, when you listen to all the debriefs, like everybody delivered Pennsylvania to Biden, you know, I'm like, well, it's kind of, it's how it works. You know, everybody had to do their piece or we would not have gotten here. And, you know, the work is, it, we had what, 75 million people vote for Trump here. We have a very polarized electorate in a very swingy state. And, you know, how do we start getting people back? You know, people are more polarized than ever. And you have to do that on the local level. You have to have people you trust at local government. You know, a good friend of mine always said that, you know, the Trump voters, like, you know, he said he could see it at the polls. He said he was working the polls and he said, uh, you know, I don't know about this Trump guy, you know, and the Republican committee person be like, oh, listen, he's going to get us the Supreme Court. He's not as bad as you think. He'll be fine. Don't worry. Go in there. And they trusted Joe, the committee person. So they went in there and they voted for Trump. And we don't have that because we need to have a presence on the ground where I may have mistrust for government up the chain, but I trust my neighbor who I trust as a person and is telling me this is what I need to do. And I think that's how we get over this hump of, of ideology. And, you know, now everybody hates us because of Dr. Seuss or whatever, like that's going to cost us more voters than our actual policies. And it's, you know, it's stupid. I'm tempted to talk about green eggs and ham, but I wanted to, uh, we have a lot of listeners in Washington and New York uh, and certainly across the Commonwealth, but especially I think for folks outside of PA, it's important to remind them a little bit about, the current Pennsylvania legislature, and then what it was in 2017. It's a full-time state house and state Senate, 253 members in total. But maybe you could speak uh, a little looking back and then with an eye to what was at play at the beginning of the 2020 cycle. So we had amazing success in 2018. You know, we picked up all the low-lying fruit. So when, when you looked at the 2016 results, especially in the collar counties, and for those who don't know, the collar counties are the suburban counties around um, Philadelphia. They have them in every state, whatever they call them. It's the, the suburbs that are, you know, making a, a move against the Republican Party. We were, I think, talking to people who had never really paid much attention to down ballot races. They weren't canvassed. They weren't, there wasn't an outreach and they were all in, you know, they voted for Hillary. They were hated Trump. And so it was easy pickings for 2018. So we worked really hard in these areas to raise awareness and we picked up nine in the house. See, now I feel like I haven't said that in so long. I can't remember 13 in the nine, 13 in the Senate, nine in the house. I think it was like 16, but we lost a couple. So we netted um, 11. And to put it in perspective for our um, for our listeners, we were down twenty seats uh, in the House and ten in the Senate when we started. Yeah, yeah, this this, this is monumental. So when when now when we're say, down four and nine. When you're saying we, uh, this is entirely a volunteer uh, effort that organically came about in 2017. It started off as an organic ever. I went to like every indivisible, I think it was probably in every library in southeastern Pennsylvania for 2017, as was Andrea. 
And then we were just trying to help train canvassers and get them out to the campaigns. The campaigns cut the turf, the campaigns do the script. You know, now we've been doing this enough time that we can offer some guidance and some insight. But generally, the people who are running on the ground, the people on the ground know. So we need to listen to them. They don't need one more person coming in and telling them how they need to talk to their neighbors. They know that. We need to listen. So that's kind of, you know, what we do. And then, you know, we just started doing it and there was a lane and people were a little mistrustful, the Democratic Party, you know, the candidates weren't really established and we started raising money. You know, we ended up getting funded some seed money to start, you know, I left my law practice to do this. So, you know, we had a, a small staff and, and st- I mean, we still do. We still have a very small, considering now we're statewide and we work with probably, I don't know how many states, 30, 40 states. We probably have had people from, we had somebody on our call from, from Arizona the other day. It's great that people are paying attention, you know, and so we ended up getting some funding. And then last year we did a lot of fundraising for candidates and we were able to raise 800,000 for candidates on top of it. Wow. Directly. So in, in the, if I'm hearing correctly, in the 2018 cycle, it was old fashioned shoe leather and organizing at coffee shops at doors in 2020. Oh, remember coffee uh, shops. Yeah, right. How about that? In 2020, it was that plus the critical hard money fundraising component. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, it was a very expensive cycle because of all the noise and you have to compete with the presidential, especially Trump, who was sucked up every news cycle. Like we were finally able to go back out canvassing, like when, you know, the Biden campaign was going to be out because of COVID. That's the weekend that Trump got COVID. So we finally get to the doors. They're like, is Trump dead? Is Chris Christie dead? You know, and you're like, oh, for the love of God, we're like fair funding. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, you cannot get any ground because he's a carnival barker. He's a circus. So there's just nothing else to talk about. So yeah, it was expensive. So they needed money to kind of get their message out with all the noise. I mean, this was about Trump and Trump only, but we fought and we had to. I got to ask you, the last episode, our listeners heard from the leadership of the Delaware County Democratic Party, Colleen and Dan. Great. And you've you've alluded to existing party infrastructure. So how would you, if you're comfortable, how how would you describe the relationship? Does it vary county by county? Absolutely. two, Two trains going to the same station that occasionally you're yelling at each other uh, through the window. How, I mean, how? Well, every county is different. Every county has different issues and challenges. And, you know, there's only so much capacity that we have. Like this is, we've been in SEPA for four years now. So we know all the players. We know where it's easy, where it's hard. Like Colleen Guiney is a pro. Like she, I joke around when she got that, when she became the chair, it's like, you know how they always say like, LeBron's coming to Philly and he never comes. Like when they were like, oh, Colleen Guiney should be the chair. And then you're like, oh, we got LeBron. You know, like that's what it was like. There's not, there's no two Colleen Guineys. We should clone her. But, you know, some are great and some are entrenched in old ways where they still are doing too much business with the Republicans and they don't have a lot of faith in the community. So everything's just different. You know, this is a really diverse state. You have some, which I just found out because we started working with some rural counties, like Act Blue will not open accounts for Democratic committees in certain counties. What's that about? Yeah. They, uh, I mean, I just kind of thought they were happy to take fees. I'm glad I'm coming on a podcast crapping on it, but I'm gonna, because like they, I think we got listeners in Boston. We got listeners in Washington. We yeah, have people who, call uh, them up. Know, who know people. They don't have contracts. Like, I guess it's established in the, nobody knew this, like even the party. So if you're a County democratic party, I think the first you, one I found out was Lycoming, like, because we can do yeah. random fundraising for them. They have PayPal and I can't do it with PayPal. 
because of campaign finance laws. And they like they, they said they were trying to get Act Blue and they don't do business in that county. I'm like, why the heck not? You know, and I have to say, like, when I brought it to people's attention, like the PA Dems, a lot of people didn't know this, you know, and I think that's the thing. It's like the disconnect. It's listening. It's listening to people. And what's your biggest problem? And, and the fact that you can't raise money in these counties. And, and those are, are some of the ones like SEPA was the easy pickings. Everybody's in SEPA now. You know, it's a lot of a lot of elbow room uh, there. But, you know, you have these areas. And if you look at the work that happened in 2020, it was like the little engine that could in all these places that, you know, you drive through and you see Trump everything. But they're like, you know, with their little Biden sign, like a big middle finger right in the middle of nowhere. But like, I am not backing down to you people. And they're the bravest and the strongest. And when you look at the results that we had, that they turned out as many voters as they can, and they kept things as close as they could, like as much as they could do. And they contributed and we should be working with everybody. So COVID did give us the opportunity with all this remote stuff that we can get places. You know, it's not like it would be easy for me to get across the state and stop in 67 counties. But, you know, it's a matter of listening and working together and everything's important. It shifts in 2022. Everything isn't important. It can't be. So I, I I know our eagers are very much uh, uh, our, our, our eagers. <laughs> you see, I, I'm so eager. Our listeners are so like, eager what? to talk about. Uh, no, I mean our listeners are so uh, eager to talk about 2022, and we have candidates getting into the race on uh, the, the, for the Senate on both sides. And let's focus on that in a moment. Well, that's, when you that's look what at 20- we're doing. You know, like uh, right now, so it's like Ben Salem. Okay, Ben Salem. We've been yep. in for four years. It's a tough, tough. Area. So that's 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 bordering Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. That's Lower Bucks County. Mm-hmm. The county's blue, but Ben Salem is purple at best. Yeah. So what do you what what, what do you mean by um, that? Well, it's Republican controlled at every level. A Republican congressman, mm-hmm. Republican state senator, Republican House. Uh, ben Salem is its own municipality and its own House district, so it's a Republican state representative. Um, and it's growing. It's a it's a fast growing. Yeah, uh, it's, it's 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 an area I think that's going to be a problem for people for a while for Dems for a while. Like Northeast Philly, it's very like Northeast Philly. You have a lot of support for Trump, but Ben Salem's going to be important for a lot of people. So we're going to have to be there and fight and work. And we've you know they won seats on council. They've won seats um, in school board, and they just keep fighting. And it's tough. It's a tough area, but like you can't ignore it because. It's important to for 2022. It's important for the governor. It's important for the Senate. Like you can't hemorrhage Democratic votes in these areas. So the work has to be done for the top of the ticket now. You know, when I think of Ben Salem, it's very diverse and it's gotten even more diverse mm-hmm. in the last 20 years. And I'm curious, as you take a look at your leadership team and you know, some of the amazing volunteers, uh, these monsters, as the uh, employer called it, is it? Primarily suburban white women like yourself, or do you have, you know, immigrants, uh, I'm thinking uh, up and down Street Road, it's like a United Nations. Uh, so uh, Street Roads in, ben, in, in ben Salem for our listeners. Uh, so give us a sense of your your, your team and your hardcore I mean, volunteers. I, think, I, I joke around that I think like our demographic is like the same as Rachel Maddow, probably. But, you know, it's it's a lot of older folks, retired folks, people who, you know, white, affluent people who have time to take you know, days to drive 45 minutes to an hour and canvas for five hours. And, you know, not everybody could do that. And, you know, we're living in a world that it's not always safe for people of color to go knocking on strangers doors, especially somewhere like Ben Salem. And, you know, so we try to do as much as we can. And, and in areas that are, you know, more urban, 
you know, or more diverse, you know, we try to support them financially so they can bring in the resources and the people they need. Like not everybody needs like, you know, 10, you know, old white ladies coming in and they're Prius from Mount Airy. So uh, that doesn't work everywhere. They're, they're fierce as hell. I'd send them anywhere, man. They can do it. But when you look at uh, the 2020 reflecting back, the dust is fully settled now. And I don't want to pull off any scabs, but, you know, there, there were there were some shortcomings. I think we had hoped and focused real hard with you guys being the tip of the spear at the legislature. And so many candidates uh, who had so much potential came up just by a smidgen short so looking at some of those candidates, you know, which which ones stood out to you? Which ones are you hoping, which seats are we hoping that we can get, you know, back into the focus for 2022? Well, uh, to add the further wrinkle is redistricting, which may or may not happen. Mm-hmm. Um, we're supposed to have new state legislative lines. Like we definitely have to have new congressional lines for 2022 because we're losing a seat. So they'll get th- their maps first. So in 2018, they got new maps in the congressional level and we didn't. So we're supposed to get them. But, you know, every I actually can't even read about it anymore because it gives me a stroke. Like, I don't know how much now the census is delayed. Probably even today may even be worse. Who even knows? I refuse to look at it at this point. So we kind of don't really even know where we're running, which is great. So that's the point. Like, we know where we're strong and we know where we're weak. So let's just work in the weak parts and the parts we can strengthen and just do all the work because somebody's going to have this district and somebody needs to win it, you know, even if it's the governor and the Senate. So we're just working the ground now, like on the local and municipal level. So we should have new lines. So that's it's crazy. So good, good chunks of Bucks County. Uh, you're you're training your sights on Bucks County. Um, Anywhere there's a what about the the Greater Harris? What about Harrisburg and the suburbs? Uh, yep, I think. I mean, Southeast, we still have some seats that we should be picking up. Bucks County, we really need to. You know, I firmly believe that we cannot flick you know, flip the legislature without picking up seats in Bucks and in South Central. South, South, South Central, that's Cumberland County, which, which Dauphin. as I recall, Gov- D- Dauphin, obviously, around Hershey and Harrisburg, Cumberland County, which Governor Wolf won in 2018, but many would think is a red county, uh, even down into York, where you, where you guys trained uh, your sites in York. So President Biden, it's so great to I say President Biden. Uh, right? It, uh, he vastly overperformed candidates at the local and statewide level. Were you all focused on the row offices? No. The, the attorney mm-hmm. general? It was different because like we didn't have that much canvassing. Like normally we were out canvassing, we'd be canvassing for the whole ticket. And we would make calls. We were calling for the entire ticket, but focusing on the state legislature. So, you know, I think whatever the survey question was like, are you going to vote for Democrats up and down the ballot? And a lot of times that kind of stopped there because it was so polarized. Like, I'll never vote for Republican again. Or somebody would be like MAGA and like hang up. So like you were kind of one or the other, but. Um, but that, that's an important, important distinction. Yeah. So as, as you all were doing uh, literally hundreds of thousands of phone calls and In text the messages. Of the state Senate and state house targets. Exactly. So you're mentioning those amazing candidates, but there's no mention of the auditor candidate or the uh, treasurer. Well, I mean, want, they were doing the PA Dems were doing that. So I see. Um, OK, you know, they were doing that. And like, you know, the, the row officers targets were different than ours. You know, you're not going to be calling into like rural Lancaster for Nina Ahmad or um, for Joe Torcella. But you would be for Janet Diaz because you need to win the seat for the Senate. Like 
that's the thing. We don't always overlap with the targets of the, you know, they're picking up low lying fruit. Like you want to turn out your voters that vote in blue areas. You know, that's where you concentrate and ideally you get to everything, but you know, you're going to find a lot less bang for your buck in the places where I'm working than you are. If you're going to be calling around, you know, the bluest parts, like their office in Montgomery County was like Jenkintown. Like I'm not, we don't go to Jenkintown. Like they're fine. They don't, they don't need us. So that's kind of the difference. Like we were trying to work on those state ledge races where they had them. Jenkintown is about as blue as yeah. can be, but it's, you know, it's interesting. That's probably about a 20 minute drive from Ben Salem. Yeah, and, a lot of people <laughs> and it's don't. amazing how, how, how different we they are. We have so many, you know, we were hampered a bit because we were at the doors. Like normal, if we weren't, if we were at the doors, we would have, have had everyone's lit, you know, and there's only so many people you can ID for on a phone bank before it becomes a poll and before people are tired of you. You know, you'd be like, oh, you like our down ballot candidate? How about our row? Like, how about our row officers? Like, they're done. Like, they're getting a million phone calls. They're not going to, you know, that's a poll. That's like a different kind of thing. So, you know, everybody was kind of focused on different targets. Like I said, we didn't do anything really in blue areas, just the, the seats we were trying to flip. And I think, you know, the bottom line is this election was about Donald Trump. People were coming out to vote for or against Donald Trump, and most of them voted against Donald Trump, but that didn't mean they were voting for Democrats. They were voting against Donald Trump. They never made any commitment, like, or we don't know who these voters are because we're still waiting on down ballot data at the Department of State level. But we don't know. They were coming out to vote against Trump. They weren't necessarily voting for Democrats, if that makes sense. No, it does. And that that was, uh, as we wrap up, one of the questions uh, I had, you know, up in Lehigh Valley, we we had three episodes and it seemed like immigration was the hot topic with each of our conversations up there. I'm curious, um, in some of these hot, super purple statehouse districts, uh, was it all politics being local and it was very much whatever's on the minds of Bucks County voters or was it whichever way the national wind is blowing and issues that, frankly, a state representative has no influence right. over? I mean, we, we would always get issues about immigration, which is not affected by the state legislature whatsoever. But I, like I said, I think this was in presidential years, you know, it's all about the top of the ticket. And especially with this year, with this time, we're in the middle of a pandemic with the lunatic as the president. And it was like watching like a horrible soap opera every single day. So people had a lot of feelings about this election that were different. And it wasn't, you know, I don't think the messaging was getting through. It just wasn't, nobody was listening Except, I mean, that was one thing. He was the master of the cycle, of the news cycle. Like how many times, you know, we would try like to plan our phone banks around like, all right, he's going to do a speech this day. People are going to react to it. So maybe we can get some space on this day, you know, and it was hard. And I think from going forward, it's going to be economics. It's going to, you know, we're going to have to have this economy needs to recover. So many people are struggling. The disconnect between the wealthy and how many people are, you know, living below the poverty line in this country is wider than ever. People are starting to realize this because it's affecting industries that traditionally were not affected. So now it's everybody's problem, not just the poor's. So I think that, you know, it's it's a chance for a dialogue. And, and I think that if we're going to take you know, the middle of the road kind of approach, which is kind of where you find Pennsylvania. It's, you know, to coin a phrase, it's the economy, stupid. You know what I mean? Like, let's talk about it. We are, we need to recover this economy. We need to figure out what we're going to do with industries that just disappeared because of a pandemic that we never saw coming. People care about their lives. They don't have the luxury to 
pontificate about every little minutia of issue. Like, how do I pay for my family? What do I do if we get sick? How do I keep my house? Like, are my kids, especially now with COVID and, you know, my kids, I have three kids in one elementary, high school, middle, they have different schedules, different start times. I never have any idea what in the actual heck they're doing. I'm in a luck. I'm in a really good school district. I don't know who would want to run for school board now. These school board incumbents are going to get clobbered because you're on. Un- they're unhappy if you open the school. They're unhappy if you close the school. Yes, sports, no sports. Everyone's angry about it, you know. And so we have to keep, you know, our neighbors, the people we trust, the people we want our voters to trust when they go to the polls that says you got to go in there and you got to vote for this Democrat. The the Republican is not a nice guy. He's not a nice guy. He might give out candy at the parade. And we used to have such things like parades and candy and people. But, you know, he gets on a train to Harrisburg and votes for the most restrictive abortion bill in the country. He's not a nice guy. He votes against equality. He votes against taxing the rich. He votes votes against the environment. Like they are not going to listen to us. They're going to listen to people in their community. So we have to make the Democrats a presence that people see, and we need to support them in areas where they're not. So we can start getting, you know, finding people where they are. So Jamie, I'm going to let you get to those uh, oh, no. three children. But not last, what? <laughs> Republican um, well, easier to deal with. Well, let me let, let me ask you about uh, no pun intended 2020 hindsight with everything that's on the horizon for 2022 when we have an open governor's mansion. A Senate race, which deeply afraid is going to be half a billion dollars in total. You and your amazing activists, are you focused still on the legislative races or are you going to focus on these statewide uh, races? Uh, And what lessons? I mean, if you had to sum it up, what would be the main takeaway that you learned from this historic cycle? Well, one, let's hope Trump's not on the ballot. That's the first thing. I mean, the danger of Trump does not go away if he comes back because he has such a polarizing. He did, you know, activate a lot of people and money on our side. But it's just it's just a a lane. I think that's just too difficult to deal with. And I, you know, I I hope he's not on the ballot. I'd like his son to be on the ballot. That'd be fun. That moron would be fun. I think his son went to uh, the Hill School. And then, yeah, then he was a pen. And apparently they own property here. I'm like, could you imagine? That would be so fun. Oh, gosh. Well, it's a it's a wide open yeah, Senate race. Who knows? Maybe, maybe one of them wants to so, get yeah, in. I mean, so. the crazier the better on their side for us. You know, we we'll always support the top of the ticket. We do it within the footprint of the legislative districts we're trying to flip. You know, so the campaigns work on the you know the the Senate campaign and the governor campaign will work in the areas where they pick up the most votes. That's where the most Dems are. That's the point. Turnout, turnout, turnout. And we're supporting them by supporting the purple areas because, like I said, it's it's bang for your buck and it's going to be expensive race. You know, they can't be spending a lot of time and money in areas that are never going to pay dividends for them because they need it's going it's always so close. So that's where we do. We work the you know the areas that would be. Where you know on the wish list, if if they had so much money and they could clone themselves and go back in time and hit every place twice, that they would do. So we're trying to get Democrats in these areas to make sure they support Dems up and down the ticket. So we're not focused on that, um, but enough people are. Jamie, thank you uh, not not only for your time and for your work, but I'm reminded you know we're looking at it's going to be a tough road ahead for good Democrats, good friends, Congressman Cartwright, Congresswoman Wild. Congressman Lamb and those state house seats, which are purple and are on the cusp in each of those congressional districts, are going to be key up and down, as you said, the tickets. So no, thank, thank you. you. Thank lucky. you so much for the work so you've done. And good people willing to do the hard work from other states that care about us from in our state. Like that's what gives me hope about it. Cause there's so many people that care. There's so many people that get it. And, you know, we just have to make sure we connect them with the right opportunities. So 
Thanks for having me. Thanks for caring about Amen. the state Thank of Pennsylvania, you. planet Pennsylvania. You bet. Thank you all so much for listening to today's episode of Pennsylvania Kitchen Table Politics. As Hillary Clinton used to say, it takes a village. This podcast would not be possible without the help of Sarah McGrath and Jake Schwartz. If you liked this discussion, we would love for you to give us a review, subscribe, and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a suggestion on a future guest and other feedback, visit our website, papoliticspodcast.org. Don't forget to follow us on social media at PA Political Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn.